Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Jew Podcast, where we dive deep into Torah and Judaism to uncover its hidden beauty. Come join us as we take a closer look and breathe new life into traditional Jewish ideas. And now, here's your host, Rabbi Moshe Siegel. Hello, and welcome to episode 43. There's only one biblical commandment that's unique to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and that is the obligation to hear the shofar blasts. The shofar's role is so essential to the day of Rosh Hashanah that the Torah actually refers to Rosh Hashanah as a Yom Teruah, the day of the shofar blasts. So what is so special about the shofar? What's the deeper meaning and symbolism reflected by it, and what does it have to do with Rosh Hashanah? I want to share with you today some extremely deep Kabbalistic ideas that really bring out the essence of what shofar is, and more than that, it really brings out the essence of who you are and who I am. So let's dive in. The Medrash teaches us an unbelievable insight into what the shofar accomplishes and why we blow it. The Medrash starts with a verse in Genesis by the binding of Isaac, right after God tells Abraham not to kill Isaac. The Torah describes, and this is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, that Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw there was a ram that was caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham then goes over to that ram and sacrifices it in place of Isaac. This story just so happens to actually be the Torah reading on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. And the Medrash explains the symbolism of this action of Abraham, that just like Abraham freed the ram whose horns were stuck in the thicket, so too in the future, the horns of a ram will be used to free his offspring, the Jewish people, who are caught in their sins. The Medrash then ends by saying that on Rosh Hashanah, when we take the ram's horn and we blow the shofar, what does that accomplish? When we blow that shofar, God gets up from his throne of judgment and switches to his throne of mercy. So we see the amazing power of the shofar. It has the ability to get God to move to his throne of mercy. But the question is, what is so powerful about this shofar? How does a shofar blast evoke a, so to speak, perspective change in God's mind in how he views us and how he judges us? So to properly answer our questions, we have to define all of these terms. What does judgment, or as we say in Hebrew, din, really mean? What is mercy or rachamim? What does that really mean? And what does God's throne even mean? Why does God have so many thrones? What does that mean? So to start off, let's explain what God's throne is. Whenever we speak of God sitting on a throne, Kabbalistically, that indicates an element of God lowering himself to be concerned with his creations. The symbolism is, just like a king, when he sits down on his throne, the process of that is you lower your body to sit down and you stay on your royal throne to greet or give attention to those that enter to meet with you. Similarly, when we say, so to speak, that God sits, we mean he lowers himself to give his attention to the creation. And you'll find this concept to be true across all of Tanakh whenever the prophets refer to God's throne. So when we say God gets up from his throne of din, of judgment, and switches to his throne of rachamim, or mercy, Kabbalistically, that means that God was looking at or maybe connecting with creation through his attribute of judgment, and now he shifted, he changes to now connect to the creation 
through the lens of mercy. So now let's define what does judgment mean and what is mercy? What is din and what is rachamim? And ultimately, how does the shofar impact this? So the concept of din or judgment in Jewish philosophy is actually very positive. Judgment is one of the greatest tools to keep us in check. Let's say I have a desire to steal something, but I know that my actions will get judged and I'll end up spending time in prison. Then that'll really force me to rethink my decision of stealing. Let's take speeding as another example. If I know I'm going to have to pay a hefty fine because I'm going too fast, I'll be much more cautious when driving and so on with everything. The reality that our actions have consequences that are direct outgrowths of our decisions with them encourages us to live a more productive and positive life. But the difficult element of judgment is that we're human and we mess up. And if every action of ours is judged so acutely and so precisely and so immediately, then none of us will be able to survive. As King Solomon, the wisest of all men, writes in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's no man on earth that only does good and doesn't sin. It's an inevitable part of our reality. So the question is, what system is in place to allow us to retain that positive element of the judgment without getting completely overwhelmed by it? And this is where the concept of mercy or rachamim enters the picture. The deeper sources explain that the letters that make up the root of rachamim are resh ches mem or rachim. And those letters are the same letters that in reverse spell machar, mem ches resh, which means tomorrow. The Kabbalists teach us that when we pray for God to have mercy on us, when we pray for rachamim, it does not mean that God should ignore our sins and overlook them. In fact, the Talmud actually writes that anyone who claims that God will just overlook and ignore his sins, God will actually ignore that person and it treats him very harshly. Rather, what we're saying when we pray for mercy is we're telling God we accept responsibility. We know that there's consequences for our actions and that we'll be judged for them. But please, God, be mirachim on us. Give us a machar. Allow us a tomorrow to show you that we really are greater than those actions that we did. In a world of strict judgment, Din says, you sinned, you should be punished immediately. Comes this concept of rachamim, of mercy, and it says, let's give it some time. Let's see if man can fix himself and change himself and not really need this punishment that as of right now looks like he deserves. So we've learned that Rosh Hashanah comes and is a day of judgment. And God starts off by looking at us through this lens of strict justice. But we blow the shofar and God switches from the throne of justice to the throne of mercy. God, so to speak, says, I see, they're blowing the shofar. And somehow that convinces God that he should have mercy on us and provide us with this time to work it out ourselves rather than punish us immediately for our wrongdoings. He instead believes in us that we can fix it. We can improve ourselves and really change that we no longer need that punishment. So what is the secret of the shofar? How does the shofar convince God that we will be better if he gives us this time? So let's go deeper. The Talmud teaches us a fascinating additional element of the shofar. The Talmud says we say three different parts of the silent prayer. And the Talmud asks, what is the instrument used to elevate these prayers to the heaven? And answers, this is the role of the shofar. The shofar carries all of our prayers and all the prayers of all of our Jewish brethren up to God's throne. 
and the Kabbalists explain that the shofar has this power because it reflects a deeper side of us than the prayers themselves are able to express. The Shem Mishmuel explains that prayers are said with words. How are words formed? It starts with a breath, and as we exhale that breath, we use five different parts of our bodies to produce the different sounds of the letters and vowels that we use to say those words. We use our throats, our palates, our tongue, our teeth, and our lips. Each of these five parts produce different sounds, which in the end produce all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the Shemi Shmuel points out that the sound of the shofar is the unadulterated breath itself, the life source that leaves the innermost recesses of our hearts, produces that sound of the shofar. And the Shemi Shmuel continues that unlike words, which constrict and define that deep inner breath as it comes out of us, the sound of the shofar just releases it. And therefore, he explains, the shofar is much deeper than any words of prayer can ever be. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for breath is hevel, which is again the same letters as the word halev. In other words, the breath reflects the innermost heart. While the word for speech in Hebrew is dibur, which shares the same root as the word davar. There's something, it's already defined, it's already tangible. So the breath itself, the undefined pure breath that comes right out of our innermost parts of ourselves, when we blow the shofar in synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, we're expressing to God the deepest part of our inner desires. And that's the spark of holiness inside of us. If we look back at Genesis, when God creates man, it says in chapter 2, verse 7, the Torah writes, Vayipach be'apov nishmas chayim. And God breathed the soul of life into man's nostrils. And the Kabbalah teaches us that the way you breathe into something is from yourself. The blower first inhales and then takes that breath and blows it into something else. So when God breathed life into Adam, he breathed from himself into Adam. And it's that same breath that God breathed into us that we're now breathing back out through the shofar. We're showing God that same breath. We're saying that we really are, in a deep, internal way, very holy, spiritual people. Don't judge us, God, by our previous negative actions. Rather, look at this shofar. Look at the pure breath that's expressing the innermost recesses of our heart and see that great potential that we have inside of us. And when God hears the shofar blast and he sees that breath that comes from the inners of our soul, he immediately gets up from the throne of judgment and switches to the throne of mercy. And that is the power of the shofar. And as one kind of last cool aside, the Talmud teaches us that every shofar blast, every teruah sound, has to have a tekiah before it and a tekiah after it. You'll notice when we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, it blown in sets. Every set begins with a tekiah, which is a straight, unbroken sound. And then it's followed by either a shavarim or a trua, which are two variations of a broken sound. And then again, it ends with a tekiah, which is a straight, unbroken sound. So every set is a straight sound, then a broken sound, and then another straight sound. And I believe the message in this is exactly like we were just saying until now. God blew into man 
a straight, perfect sound, perfection spiritually. But then during life, we become that middle sound, the broken sound. We turn into a shavarim or a trura. But the set only ends with another tekiah, representing that we have the power within us and we have that ability to make ourselves whole again and to express that true godliness that lies within us. I give us all a blessing that we should merit to recognize our true, amazing, inner, godly potential that we all have inside of us and take this recognition with us on Rosh Hashanah to Hashem. And this together with the blasts of the shofar should be a merit for us that we should all be written in the Book of Life for a happy, healthy, sweet new year. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Jew podcast and for taking the time to study Torah and deepen your connection to Judaism. If you found value in today's episode, please leave us a rating or review and subscribe to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or topic requests for Rabbi Moshe, please email the Thinking Jew podcast at gmail.com or visit thethinkingjew.com. 